0: Welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com.
1: So, I'm Phil Ford, and I am a professor of musicology at Indiana University, Bloomington.
0: And I'm JF Martel. I'm an independent filmmaker in Canada. Just that, just Canada. Just
1: just Canada. Yeah. (laughs) An undisclosed location in Canada.
0: right, Right. Isn't Canada itself an undisclosed location?
1: <laughs> oh, you sound so Canadian when you say that. It's like it's like this Canadian thing to obsess about how nobody really knows much about Canada.
0: And, and you would know best, Phil, because you are yourself Canadian, correct?
1: It's true. I am. I've, yeah. I'm a Canadian who's lived in the United States for a long time. Uh, long enough that when I come up to Canada, I, I I don't feel very Canadian. And when I come back to the United States, I don't feel... Very American.
0: That's such a Canadian way to feel, though. So, uh, so what are we doing here? So we are, are starting we a podcast called mm-hmm. Weird Studies, and I confess that the name was my idea. It was. It came from a series of a series of posts you wrote that were collectively titled Weird Studies. Can you explain right. why you wrote those and what you mean by them?
1: Yeah, so I've been blogging for a long time, and uh, lately, in recent years, I've been writing more and more about subjects around magic and mysticism uh, and, you know, how it relates to music and art, but, you know, just sort of also just philosophically, like ideas that are hard for educated moderns to think. Like, for example, magic is almost the sort of, I don't know, it's the epistemic other of modernity it's the it's mm. the thing that's hardest to think like if i tell you oh yeah i'm a magician people assume if i just say that, say that in public and if somebody's going to think like oh so you do stage magic you like saw ladies in half or you know uh do yeah. card tricks or whatever and it's like no i i i do magical rituals that have effects in the material world so i say I needed money last week to make rent, and so I did a magical working, and I found 200 bucks just lying there in the street. That's the kind of magic that I do. Um, That's a hard sell, epistemically speaking, to most people, right? Because uh, there are just so many very fundamental axioms about how the universe works that that breaks. So I'm interested philosophically in ideas that are hard for us to think, and at a certain point, like, OK, if you're in academia, you know, or even if you're not, if you've gone to college at any point in the last 30 years, you know that the Formula X studies is like really, really popular in academia. So there's, you know, gender studies and American studies and African-American studies. And so I st- it started almost as like a little joke that my scholarly discipline is actually weird studies. And the more I thought about that, the more I actually think, like, okay, so I just made that idea up as a joke, but I actually kind of like the idea, so I'm keeping it. And also I found that the URL weirdstudies.com was available, so I'm like, yeah, definitely, I'm keeping it. Um, The idea of Weird Studies, for me, if for a second we decide that it's a thing and not just like a a whimsical notion I dreamed up one day, um, it is that branch of let's not say academic, let's just say intellectual. I mean, that's a really pompous word, but like an intellectual study of things that don't fit. You know, it can be what are called paranormal or Fortian phenomena. It can be things like UFOs uh, or Bigfoots. Bigfeet? Um, I don't know what the Big plural feet. of Bigfoot is. Big feet. Bigfeet. Uh, Uh, It can be, you know, those kinds of things, ghosts or whatever, Um, but it it can also be a pretty broad range of experiences that just kind of don't fit into our assumptions about the way the world works. And Charles Fort, who gives his name to the term Fortean, Charles Fort was a writer who in the early 20th century wrote a series of books. That were based on researches that he did obsessively for years, uh, I believe in the New York Public Library, where he assembled every clip he could find from every newspaper he could get, lay his hands on or from around the world where something weird happened. Things falling from the sky, for example. Uh, That's always what I think of when I think of Charles Fort, is endless lists of objects that fall from the sky. Huge chunks of ice or melons or fish or, you know, whatever. Um, And Fort was, for the most part, not particularly interested in trying to explain these things. He just thought they were interesting. And so he'll just lay them out. He won't tell you what to think. He won't tell you that it's aliens. He won't tell you that it's the Space Brothers come down to share their wisdom with us. He doesn't believe really in anything. He's just interested in these facts that don't fit. And the point that he makes is that we all have this kind of mental filing cabinet where we put our experiences. And... um most of our experiences fit pretty clearly into some well-established category. So my experience of talking into this microphone right now falls into the category of things I do with J.F. Martell. But then there's a bunch of things that people experience that don't fit into anything. I can give you a very brief example. When I was a young man, I was at college. It was my second year at college, so I would have been 19 years old. And I was partying and I was out every night till really late. And I was, you know, I was, I was having, I was being a typical college sophomore. And I was really shorting myself on sleep. And one night I was just like, I could really tell that I was uh, profoundly sleep deprived. I was like, I've got to get a decent night's sleep tonight. And so I went to bed. And as I was lying there in bed, my door flew open and a witch came in and flew around the room and, and disappeared through the wall, and I was like, Whoa, okay, that 's strange. I must have fallen asleep there for a second and dreamed this. The only thing is right. that you know pretty much every time that I fall asleep and I start dreaming there 's a kind of a sense of discontinuity. My eyes close, I fall asleep i 'm never aware at the of the point at which I fall asleep." But at a certain point, all of a sudden, I'm in a parade or some something. It's just different from my room. But this was, I'm looking at the room, and then there's this thing that can't exist. And then it's gone, and I'm still looking at the room. There's this continuity of experience. And so it's like a dream, but it didn't quite fit with the yeah. phenomena I think of as dreams and it certainly didn't fit with any idea that i had about how the universe works my universe is a universe in which witches don't exist and they and people don't fly and they don't pass somehow miraculously through solid walls and so mm-hmm. for years i just stuffed that experience in the folder marked other or miscellaneous And I was like, yeah, it was probably some kind of sleep disorder thing. And I've had sleep disorders for much of my life. So that's actually a pretty plausible hypothesis. But I don't really know what that was. And the way I dealt with it is by not thinking very hard about it. And that's a classic example of stuffing it in the folder marked weird. So if you say, well, do you believe that witches exist? No. Um, But you saw a witch. Yeah, but I didn't see a witch because that was a dream. Well, was it a dream? Well, not really, but like, could we change the subject? That's basically the internal monologue that I have. And Fort's point is that we do that on the level of society, that we as a people have certain kinds of experiences that we just don't have a ready explanation for, like, for example, fish falling from the skies. And so those facts are what he calls damned. That's why he called his first book The Book of the Damned, because he wasn't interested in explaining these facts. He just wanted to collect them and hit you with them. And if he had a point, really, it was just to sort of say, there's a wide spectrum of experience that doesn't fit into any category that we can readily manufacture for it. And the way we deal with it mostly is by ignoring it. But that doesn't mean that that stuff didn't happened or wasn't experienced by somebody so what now and that kind of is what i want to do with this podcast is is uh is ask what now
0: i think that what charles fort was doing he was performing a kind of experiment a quantification experiment whereby amassing enough of these by bloating the weird uh category file by bloating it (laughs) so much that it would it be it become increasingly harder to ignore it, and I think that that's kind of what um, happens in a society that that anomalies accumulate, and uh, we do our best to forget them, but the nevertheless the remembered anomalies accumulate to such a degree that a paradigm shift becomes necessary, and that's kind of the way that worldviews seem to change. It's how we it's how the birth of modern science happened, right, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, my wife once compared it to like, you know, those billboards with um, they have these like these like vertical panels, like blinds that switch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, so you'll have two billboards in one. Right. That's right. So it's kind of like one side is all the miscellaneous stuff and the other side is the, the placid kind of immediately understandable picture of reality. And you can look back at your life and just look at all the stuff that follows the rules of regularity and normalcy and just see that as your life. But if you were just to pick out all the all those instances where something weird happened and you were to line them up all together and kind of just flip and see those things give primacy to those kind of exceptional moments your life might look very different and uh, the world that em- the world picture that emerges from your life experience might also look very different and for me the weirdest like weird studies the way I would appropriate for my own purposes if I were to do such a thing, which I guess I am with this podcast, is that <laughs> I just want to pay attention to the anomalies. And uh, this is something that uh, it's kind of like, I think it's kind of like my fate in a way, because I've had the um, the weird uh, luck or, or the bad luck, I don't know, of having had several kind of crazy nonsensical weird experiences in my life that I just can't forget. I just can't leave them alone. I had a similar experience to yours with The Witch. I, uh, this Actually, what I had um, was a series of classic sleep paralysis episodes. So sleep paralysis is a, is a, a worldwide phenomenon where uh, a person will, will suddenly wake up and feel a presence in their room. And usually that presence takes the form of an entity of some sort, like a, like a, like a monkey-like dog or like a goblin or a witch or an, a man or, or a shadow person. And the entity jumps onto the chest of the sleeper and, begins, and tries to suffocate them. So this mm-hmm. is an age-old phenomenon. It was recorded way, way back uh, in antiquity, and it continues to be experienced all around the world today, regardless of cultural boundaries, all that stuff. So I had a particularly uh, intense um, sleep paralysis episode in the house where I spent my adolescence. So this is uh, the third house I lived in with my uh, my mother and stepfather. This took place in the back room, so a room towards the back of the house that was my room for a time and um, eventually became my brother's room. And when it was my brother's room, he had the same experience in the same room. Also, the, the, the house was built, it was adjacent to a kind of grove or a little forest. I think you and I took a walk in that forest when you came to Ottawa last year. Oh, yeah. And, um, and that forest is adjacent to a cemetery. And uh, the forest is part of an estate that uh, has like this old monastery on it. It's not a monastery anymore, but that's what it was for a time. Anyways, there's, it's a weird hill in Vanya. This place, this is a weird place. So I was in the back room and uh, in the middle of, uh, I was going to bed. I hadn't fallen asleep; I just kind of laid down and then, you know, trying trying to fall asleep. And I, f- I felt this thing kind of creep in through the window and then crouch in the corner of the room. And I could see there was this humanoid crouching thing. And then it climbed on top. I remember the feeling of its little, you know, hands on my ankles as it climbed on top of me. I was completely paralyzed. And then it proceeded to, you know, do... It's thing like it tries to suffocate me until finally, through a sheer act of intense, like a crazy act of will, I just sat up, and it was gone. Um, so that's so. What, what do you do with an experience like that? Well, obviously, the, the the phenomenon of sleep paralysis is so prevalent, it's so common that psychologists can't just ignore it. So it's an anomaly they have to explain. So of course, what they go to is like, let's find a neurological explanation. Let's find a some kind of cultural explanation. They've, they've kind of ruled that out because it happens across cultures. So it must be some kind of brain thing that results in the same, or basically, like, it results in a very specific phenomenological experience that many, many people report in very similar ways. So um, I recently read a book by Wilhelm uh, Rocher, who is a 19th century philologist. He wrote a book called Ephialtes, a pathological mythological treatise on the nightmare in classical antiquity. And in this book, he looks at all of the mentions of sleep paralysis that come up in ancient literature, so the Greeks and Romans. And, and he looks at how those, that phenomenon was understood back, back then and compares it to the modern pathological understanding or theories about that phenomenon. And he comes to the conclusion that the, the, the ancients had a pretty good idea of how this thing happened. And he, his theory and the 19th century theory was that it, that sleep paralysis happened when the nose and mouth of a sleeper were covered up, that a person couldn't breathe. It mm-hmm. would result in this type of experience. So it, and it got very specific, like if your mouth and nose are completely covered, the creature will just leap onto you if it's partially or progressively covered you'll see you'll feel the creature creeping into the room and climbing slowly on top of you if if your if your mouth and nose are covered by a a a fur blanket the creature will be hairy if it's by a a, just a regular bed sheet or your arm it'll be human you know like it got that and Hmm. he said that they could the 19th century psychologists could actually reproduce this in laboratories blah 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 and it's a very convincing account a very convincing theory the problem is that that theory now is completely discredited. So in other words, the theories change, but the phenomenon remains the same. Yeah. So let's say you've experienced something like sleep paralysis, like your witch or my little goblin. Well, what, what, as an individual, what do you make of that? And to me, the, the the most honest perspective is to look at it for what it is phenomenologically, To to take your cues from it instead of... Uh, trying to impose upon it some kind of model that you've just been in, you've just inherited from your your cultural context, right? Right, and I think that that actually gets at something pretty important, which is like this phenomenological
1: approach. Um, Jeffrey Kripal, who's sort of one of the very very few working academics who gives the weird the time of the day. He's a comparative religion scholar who works at Rice University. Uh, and has written a number of fine books dealing with with weird stuff. So he specifically enjoins, as a comparative religionist practice, he enjoins a practice of phenomenology, of sticking with, like, what is the experience? Not immediately saying, well, what's the explanation for the experience? But sticking with the experience and using the tools of comparison to understand that experience in a much larger Frame than just my own subjective experience. Because it would be one thing if I had that experience of the witch or you experience of a goblin and it was just us. But as you say, this is as close to a human universal as exists. Mm-hmm. And as you say, there is the stubborn residue of the unexplained around the issue of sleep paralysis. And the deeper you get into the literature on sleep paralysis, on accounts of it, the more peculiar phenomenon, it it appears, even as we acknowledge it has some organic basis. It's still weird. You know, this phenomenological approach is just sort of like, well, don't immediately jump to trying to explain it. Just bracket off explanation for for the time, like, while you're attending to experience. Once you have a really well thought through and sort of reasoned through or felt through experience in hand... You go looking for points of resonance with other things, and from there you can build, if not a, a thoroughgoing explanatory framework, in the sense of like explaining it away, at least you can understand the phenomenon a lot better. But the other thing about it, and he and Kripal points this out, is it also somewhat saves you from the trap of belief. You know, this is not going to be like an occult podcast. This is a this is a, an arts and philosophy podcast. And I think one of the ideas behind it is, like, I'm a working academic, and I have a background as a performing musician. And so, like, I'm an artist, sort of, who became an academic. And you are an artist who has retained a lot of interest in philosophy and a lot of uh, kind of learned discourses. And so there's this intersection between us, and and so we get to talk about these issues from like two slightly different but complementary vantage points we're doing um a podcast that's really about like arts and ideas uh, in ideas that interest us but it's just that the interests, ideas that interest us usually touch on something a little bit strange or something that never entirely settles down into some uh fully familiar category but by virtue of the fact that you're not immediately leaping to explanation, you're just happy to hang out in that zone of like, what was the experience and what other experiences does it look like and what have other people said about such experiences? You don't have to bite down on belief and 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 come to some kind of conclusion, like, well, I, I saw lights in the sky, therefore aliens. Right. Right? Or I saw a witch flying about my room, therefore witches are real. You don't have to say witches are real. You don't have to say that witches aren't real. You don't have to immediately say, oh, it's all in your head. Um, you don't have to say any of that shit. You just have to hang out in this kind of, this in-between zone.
0: Yeah, well, here we're touching on an important aspect of our relationship, your, you and me, uh, Phil. And that's, right now you're mm-hmm. articulating what we've called in our correspondence the thin edge, thin end of the wedge the thin end of the wedge uh, being the subjectivist kind of phenomenological end. And my tendency is to, to, as you've pointed out, is to hang out at the the thick end of the wedge, which you characterize the a more objectivist or realist perspective. So what, what we mean by that is that, for me, the weird goes beyond phenomenology. It's not just about honoring experience qua experience. It's about trying to get to an experience of the real as such. And I wouldn't say that the, every experience is an experience of the real as such, but that the real has layers that we can actually peel and discover. Like, So in other words, if we just stay with, like Kripal does, with the experience itself and just look at the world as a kind of narrative story, Composed of human experiences, no experience is superior to another. So therefore, all exp- all we can do is compare them and find the commonalities or the archetypes at work in them. Uh, we're, we're, what we're doing is basically we're just cutting off experience from any type of objective reality. But what what in- and that's fine. That's awesome. But what's what's interesting to me is trying to get to that deeper reality behind a phenomenon. So I I remain kind of like realist in the sense that I I do think that there is uh, like, for example, when it comes to sleep paralysis, I think that the the best approach for investigating that phenomenon uh, would be to begin with a phenomenological analysis of what it is, so to look at it as an experience, and then to engage in a what could only be called a parapsychological investigation into it to find out what's going on.
1: I like this idea of the thin end of the wedge, thick end of the wedge. The thin end of the wedge is like that kind of bracketed it off phenomenological attending to experience and the thick end of the wedge is metaphysics it's a kind of thinking philosophically about those experiences and i think that the two are i mean we're all about the whole wedge right yes exactly. each of us has a tendency so i tend to start at the thin end of the wedge and you tend to start at the thick but that's actually even as i'm saying that that sounds like bullshit to me Mm -hmm. all i'm prepared to say is that uh those are two poles the thin end and the thick end that we oscillate between those poles constantly and i think that that's kind of what this podcast is going to be exactly You know, this is actually a real challenge for doing something like this podcast. It seems hubristic to me. Like, it almost it's like a, a, if, if we were going to do a podcast on the hip. Like, just a note for the folks at home, the hypothetical folks at home. I wrote a book about hipness, about the hip. People would say, oh, are you writing a book about telling saying what's hip? And I say, no, I'm a historian, which means that I'll write about what people thought was hip like, you know, in the 1940s and 50s or whatever. But if you were to do a podcast about what's hip, you're just, that's really hubristic. You're just asking for trouble because everybody's going to be like, well, you're not so hip. How the hell do you know what's hip? And, you know, likewise, uh, we're doing a podcast on the weird. It sounds sort of like we're congratulating ourselves. like, oh, we're so weird. We are so out there. Um, There's nothing weird about me. There's nothing... There is nothing weird about me. I'm a fucking professor. It's just like there's nothing weird about being a professor. Or maybe there is, but not in a good way. So, like, there seems to be something hubristic saying, like, because it's the idea, like, oh, we're going to wrestle it to the floor. We're going to nail it down. We're going to be able to tell you what's weird. And by the very terms that we've established, this sort of sense of the perennially unfilable aspect of existence. It's saying, Oh, I promise that we're going to file away all of those perennially unfilable aspects of existence. You can see that it's sort of like you're setting yourself up for failure.
0: That well, that's why that, that's why you had to dismantle the discipline of weird studies right after creating it, right? That's right. The idea is that is that you can't you can't use words to get to what's outside of any frame of reference. All you can do is suggest it or allude to it or look for it. And I think our podcast I guess it could be construed as hubristic if we, see, we claim that we know what the weird is or that we can find it or we can we can identify it or make it not weird. Or we could say that what we're doing is we're looking for that little rift in things that make them interesting to us in light of our fascination with the unknown. You know, in which case... It's just a cool way of doing a podcast, I think.
1: I can make it a comparison to art, actually. There's an art critic I love named Dave Hickey. He says, you know, there's a fundamental social moment around beauty. It's the moment that I look at something beautiful and I say, oh, that's beautiful. And the moment that you say, yeah, or really, or whatever. But like, it's beauty is in part constituted by that moment that we're engaging with it and we are sharing something there's a kind of a there's an important element of co-creation that human beings are co-creating beauty like beauty is something that's in the object but it's also something that we as listeners viewers readers are creating with the author and that to me is like an important function of education it's one reason why I got into the academic game. I care a lot about teaching and for me teaching even in you know sometimes if I'm teaching undergraduates I will play something and I want them to participate in a moment of beauty with me and I'll say that's beautiful or I'll I'll use or I'll say that with more words or different words. But it's almost like when you've got a, like a little baby and you're trying to get them to try mashed sweet potatoes for the first time. Of course, babies don't like anything. Uh, and so you take a spoonful yourself and you go, mmm, mm, so good. And you try to convince your baby that if you're enjoying it so much that they'll enjoy it. There's a little bit of that with aesthetic education. Some of it is deictic, where you're pointing to something. You're saying, beautiful. And you're trying to arouse a corresponding emotion. You're not trying to brainwash people. You're not trying to put the whammy on people. You're just trying to create a resonance between people, Right. Well, getting back to what this podcast can do, what I can't do is nail down the idea of the weird, and it, what I can't do is establish our own bona fides as the weirdest motherfuckers in the room. But what we can do is we can look at ideas, and including some ideas that don't seem weird at all, like one idea we've kicked around for a show is doing a show on cursing, because as you might already have noticed, I love to swear. One thing that we can do is we can talk about an idea like curses, which is not very weird on its own. It can be, yeah. But there's a weird aspect to it. And we can look at that and we can be like, wow, that's pretty weird. And even just that deictic moment of just being like, whoa, weird, is itself a constitutive act? Like we're participating in that aspect of existence that is elusive is inherently protean it's always uh slipping through our fingers and i think
0: that the reason it's so important uh, to talk about the weird today as a as a conceptual category as a kind of uh, heuristic even is that we're living in uncertain times and it's time i think uh culturally in the west probably worldwide where we start to think outside the box where we start to look for new conceptual avenues new affordances in our mental landscape you know um there's uh timothy morton he's a philosopher in in the u.s mm-hmm. i believe he wrote a book called hyper objects where he talks about these these objects that are imposing their reality on us like they're showing us that they're real without a doubt for example Uh, climate change for him as a hyper object it's a it's a reality that exceeds us and that we have to face but that our current frames of reference can't make sense of so these hyper objects come up and we we are forced to undergo a kind of paradigm shift Mm -hmm. to accommodate their reality and I think we're living in such a moment now and I think it's very important that we at least I think that it's it could be useful to think in terms of the weird to think in terms of the possible uh, as opposed to just the actual settling for settling for just what seems to be to to try to get closer to the way things actually are by just you know peeling away the seemings and seeing what reveals itself underneath so that to me is is just an interesting thing to do but also I think kind of uh, possibly uh, an important thing to do today well that's what we're doing yeah For what it's that's worth. what this
1: podcast is about so we've well and truly introduced the
0: podcast we have indeed if you enjoyed this episode consider subscribing to weird studies on iTunes Stitcher or Google Play You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.